Hi everyone, welcome to the Things I Never Said podcast. It is currently October 6, 2020, and with us is CJ, who is a registered nurse at a COVID unit in Los Angeles. We're your hosts, Wendy and Beatrice, and today we'll be discussing CJ's experience as a nurse during the pandemic. Please note that this podcast may contain triggering and/or sensitive topics. If you feel triggered or need a second to breathe, please take care of yourself first, and know that we've included resources in the description. I'm going to have our guest introduce himself. So, CJ, please tell us a little bit about your name and what do you do and where you are. Hi, Wendy. Beatrice, thanks for inviting me to the podcast and just for the opportunity to be on here. Yeah, I'm a registered nurse in Los Angeles. So I work for a big hospital that's in the top ten、uh, nationally ranked hospitals. But I started out as a new graduate nurse on a step down cardiac telemetry, and then earlier this year in March. That unit, the unit that I'm currently on, transitioned into a step-down COVID unit, and right now we're taking care of critical COVID-19 patients up until some point where they need a higher level of care, requiring a ventilator. So, but basically that is where I'm at, and I've been a nurse for about four and a half years. It'll be five years in May. So. I've been on the same unit ever since, and just trying to figure out the kind of the next opportunity to kind of move on to from where I'm at. To begin, how and why did you decide to work in healthcare? Yeah, I get that question a lot, and <laughs> well, I it's really relevant now. I, <laughs> I always wanted to be like in a sort of like position to help someone navigate through the healthcare system, and. To me, that was between like a doctor or a nurse, and I did a few opportunities shadowing both professions, and I liked the nursing role just because of like the frontline experience and being with the patients for twelve hours. Some nurses sometimes more than that, but I also like the other aspect of the job where it requires a lot of teamwork, but not only with other nurses, but you work with different teams. So there's what we call a multidisciplinary team. So it involves like. Respiratory therapists, doctors, specialists, surgical teams. So you're dealing with different teams, and you get to like, well, I get to like utilize each one, communicate to each one, and I, you know, prioritize task, and I figure out like their expertise and how I can best use their expertise to kind of like improve the patient care outcomes. So, and that really stems from like just my just growing up playing basketball and understanding like each player or each of my teammates' like specialty, and you know, being in one team, a very like team based. Approach. So I kind of saw that in nursing. Oh wow, that's a cool、yeah. comparison. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you know because of COVID nineteen, it's changed, and now all of your patients or most of your patients、um, are COVID nineteen patients. How can you tell us a little bit about how this pandemic has changed your workplace environment from like before? The pandemic and now I can't speak for like the other units in my hospital because all those units, the other units that like deal with their specialties, were still the same. Whereas my unit was specifically like cardiac and then became COVID. I don't know if we'll continue or remain as a COVID unit, but the workplace itself, it was scary at first, just because there was no like medical evidence. About this like novel coronavirus, and that was just for us nurses. We were kind of like walking on uncharted territory because we didn't even know what kind of mask to use, and we were also afraid because we were running out of like a lot of PPE supply. And another issue we ran into was the fact that the you know cleaning wipes and the you know the alcohol like the Hand sanitizers were running out, so we were running into like equipment and even cleaning solutions, and also 
the biggest challenge too was the fact that when we did have our patients and we were treating them, they were all behind closed doors and these all these doors were wood, so we couldn't see through. And it was hard to just base a patient's improvement or base their improvement just on numbers. And we couldn't see any physical improvement because if we did have to open the door, we would have to gown up and walk in and kind of assess them. So all doors were shut on our unit because normally they would be open, but they're all shut just to limit the spread. So, but the changing part, this whole pandemic really brought my team together and we really were creative and we worked with our uh, environmental service department where they off like they figured out a solution that we could use that would still disinfect like medical equipment. Now when I say medical equipment, I mean like let's just say a lot of times we a COVID-19 patient would have like you would see on the x-ray kind of like their airflow and how well they're ventilating. You can only judge that by an x-ray. So we would have these x-ray techs come in the room, do at the bedside. And obviously their equipment would be contaminated. So they would come out and then they would have to disinfect. But just due to like the economy shutting down, like all the cleaning wipes were all out of stock and no one knew when we would get those delivery orders back. But however, back to my point, we, you know, worked with the environmental services too, where they found a solution that would actually disinfect the medical equipment. And we would actually put these solutions in buckets and distribute them throughout these designated areas where, you know, whether you had a stethoscope or an x-ray or even like a gurney where patients would be going from the room downstairs to, you know, the imaging place and back everyone could disinfect. And environmental services also provided us with um, another solution too, to disinfect our hands. So that was a much needed solution. Yeah. But the other two changes were the PPE supply. We also work with the linen department and they've been providing us with like these isolation gowns that we use. And normally we, we would just dispose them and throw them away, but we actually, these isolation gowns were like had a way better quality. And once we were done being in the room, we would remove our gowns and put them in these bins where the linen department would come, collect them, and then bring a new bin with clean gowns. So reusing them in the recyclable and they have a really like strenuous process trying to like make sure these are clean to reuse. And the biggest improvement was the, I think I mentioned this earlier, was the, the viewing windows where I spoke about like the you know, these patients that are being sick and just needing constant attention and care, and they were just behind closed doors all the time. And that's like one of the saddest things is that these patients like would be in these rooms and alone and these doors would be shut because like we didn't want anything coming from the room outside. Right. So I emailed the our chief nursing officer who was really great and I emailed the idea of a viewing window where what we had was just like your normal door you know just like think of any house door it's just wood you can't see through the viewing window would now allow nurses to like quickly respond to any like physical changes or improvements or patient deconditioning we would able to communicate to the patients too through the window because we would be able to see them from outside the room. So just imagine like a house door with a window and we would be able to communicate with them and we would be able to like bundle all our tasks and go in and be really efficient, just do everything at once. And that would also like limit the contact. And that would also like conserve like a lot of the PPE supply that we had. So, but most importantly, these patients, they would be able to see us face to face from their bed. You know, we could smile with their eyes or we could wave with them. We can give them a thumbs up. And that to them was just really great because you have to imagine these patients 
are in the hospital for two weeks or even more. And there's no one visiting them except for the nurses. So just the fact that they were able to see another person through that window, just waving and, and showing, you know, just like being positive to them, that's, it means a lot because, you know, obviously they're, bi- they're battling a virus and there's this morale, this spirit, you can kind of see it in them. Yeah, the you know at this time any sort of human contact must be really really important. Yeah, it's a, it sounds like a great solution to to a really important issue. Um, and you were you mentioned you were brought to the units in March, so basically when the pandemic first started, right? My unit was actually the first unit to receive the COVID nineteen or the patient with the novel virus. And basically, for whatever reason, checked in with my charge nurse. And I said, you know, is the patient here? And they're like, yeah. Or my charge nurse didn't know. And then suddenly I found out the patient was literally wheeled down on a wheelchair just down the hallway. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like, oh. yeah, there was no like heads up or I don't know. We were notified or anything, but this patient literally just walked down. Just think about February when no one was wearing a mask. Like, we didn't even know if this the novel coronavirus would, you know, be here in the U.S. And, and we heard, you know, the initial news in the U.S. and we knew nothing about it. And here we are, like this patient just being wheeled down. And how did like, you, how did you guys know it was the COVID patient? Well, we were informed downstairs in the ER. Like, gotcha. Um, yeah. But I don't know. We had no idea. We just didn't have the same protocols, precautions as we do now. Right. But I mean, it was new and everything. Yeah. No one knows what and, to expect. Yeah. But now when you say that, you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're handling patients like that at the time because right. of how much improvement we have made and progress we have made. Basically, the first patient that we had, we put him in a negative pressure room. Basically, that's engineered where the air in the room wouldn't be able to come out even if the door like you open the door the the air wouldn't flow outside the room because it's a oh, wow. for whatever yeah it's a negative pressure inside the room so air is constantly coming from outside the room to inside or usually we put patients with like you know who are high risk for like tuberculosis or any sort of like respiratory condition that would be contagious so that's what we had to do and then Suddenly we get we got more and more patients and we just started using just the regular beds. So and the only way we could, you know, limit the spread was just to shut the door, even just regular rooms. So Gotcha. So how yeah. specifically have you personally worked with COVID patients? And I guess also how specifically have your your floor worked with COVID patients? Yeah, I'm a clinical nurse three, so I play different roles and judging on the staffing just because of my experience on the floor and knowing everyone on that because I'm one of like the longer people who have been on that floor so I know everybody I know the staff and the nurses to the doctors and I a little bit about the different tiers what that means for for the listener who don't really know Oh, right. Thank you for <laughs> yeah, we're, that. We're, I don't really know. <laughs> so a clinical nurse one would be someone who has zero to one year experience. So basically fresh from or who recently graduated nursing school and who's like in a nursing program and is trying to gain experience up into that one year mark, up into the one year mark. If that new nurse does you know well and is safe and they will be promoted to clinical nurse two. Now at the clinical nurse two, in order to go from two to three, in order to obtain your 
clinical nurse three status um, requires different things. Like you have to be part of certain committees like quality improvement, performance improvement committees, retention, recruitment, basically committees that have different roles that that kind of help and advance the practice on our floor, whether that's improving the patient experience, improving nursing performance, or helping better the relationships between doctors and nurses. So in far as like communication. So those are the committees. So someone who would have to be like a co-chair there or also clinical nurse two would have to like precept new students or new hires. They would have to prove that they would be able to handle like a more of what we call a break relief or resource nurse role. I'll talk, I'll speak more on that later. And also maybe they would, clinical nurse twos would maybe develop a project that they believe would help improve the floor. Maybe that project being as simple as like, because a lot of patients tend to lose belongings. Maybe they would create some sort of process where it would help you know, create this checklist so that patients belongs wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't lose it. So it can go anywhere from, you know, from the bedside clinically or improving some sort of process, whether that be, you know, administrative or just a belongings itself. But those are kind of like the different pathways that a clinical nurse two could advance to a clinical nurse three. Gotcha. Yeah. And you are a click nurse three, right? Yeah. So once you're, and actually it goes up to four, but four is... I'm just going to skip over three for a second, but four is basically like what always is like a charge nurse who oversees like the whole floor and the whole operation. So they would be in charge of like staffing and any changes on the unit that required adequate, you know, more like, let's just say what, uh, that I happened to injured my hand and I needed to be down in the ER to be seen, then that nurse would communicate to, or the charge nurse would communicate to like bed reservation and try to figure out how to get a, like an a nurse on the floor here. Also that charge clinical nurse is almost like a, like a mentor and like just a big picture supervisory sort of a. Yeah. And just like an expert too. Yeah. So, and would know how to utilize just different resources available. So they have to take a class. So I don't know the entire scope, but from what I've seen them do, they basically do a lot. They're almost like managers. So, <laughs> right. but for clinical nurse three, I am basically, I could either be like on the front lines, like doing patient care at the bedside, part of a committee, whether I'm a member or a co-chair and I can precept nursing students, clinical nurse ones and new hires. Mainly I could also be the break relief nurse, a resource nurse. And what that means is like, I am basically like helping the charge nurse. I would communicate like, what's the main goal today? Just judging on what the census is in the hospital. And they, so I would work with the charge nurse, but I would also kind of be like a supervisor too for like the other floor nurses who are on the front lines. So if they needed maybe a second opinion about a patient or how to communicate to a doctor or who, which doctor is best to handle the situation, they would ask me and I would kind of provide that kind of that mentor, that mentorship with them. Gotcha. Thank you for breaking this down for us. So going back to my earlier question. So as a clinical three nurse, what was your experience working with COVID patients? Yeah. Sorry. I tend to ramble. So. No, no, you're good. <laughs> yeah. So my experience is that I was always on the front lines at the bedside. And I would say that 
you know, one of the most difficult things was the kind of the visitation policy, like the visitor policy. And basically, my hospital was very strict at the beginning, probably for the first few months, like absolutely no visitors and no visitors on the COVID unit. And the reason why I bring this up is that a lot of the patients that we do see who have COVID and have a very, very poor prognosis and are already receiving maximum amount of like oxygen and treatments, and there's no signs of improvement, the doctor would have to open that discussion with with the family members about end-of-life care. And what was difficult is that these family members couldn't visit the patients who are basically, like I said, very poor prognosis. And I mean, we would set up video conference and they would be able to see them through like their iPads and everything, but that wasn't enough. They like, the families could not physically see their loved ones, whether it be mom, dad, grandpa, or grandma. They physically could not see them and they couldn't see the extent of their condition. And the reason I'm telling you this is because, you know, the decision to put your loved one on end of life care in like hospice and just having, you know, very comfortable, as comfortable of a passing as possible, uh, the families would, it would be hard for them to decide. So these decisions would sometimes take like days, sometimes even weeks. And we would just see, unfortunately, the, the patients just suffer because of the amount of oxygen, the pressure to deliver that high amount of concentrated oxygen into their nose. It, it was really hard to see. And they would have tubes, feeding tubes to feed them because they could no longer feed themselves. Are usually you know, during this time the patients like mm-hmm. conscious at the time or are they able to like carry, the, you know, conversation with their family or, or not really? No. There were some that were pretty much just laying there and you could see their chest rise or breathing and that delivery of oxygen. You could hear it just rushing through their nose and, you know, they wouldn't really say anything. But there were some patients too that were just grunting and moaning. Those were the hard ones because even if, because you would just hear them from the nursing station and maybe we would have to ask the doctors to order some sort of like as needed kind of calming medication. Mm-hmm. So that way, you know, that noise, so they wouldn't be have to be in so much pain. But there were some families who were like just ready to accept and they understood the, you know, everything that was, that could be possibly done was done. And that's kind of the interaction and dealing with uh, COVID patients. So that's more of the population that I interacted with. There were a few, you know, more of the younger side, like 50 who are, would receive like a nasal cannula, like two to four liters and, and would be relatively young and wouldn't have any medical history. So it was kind of like uh, scratching my head and just seeing like just the virus, how it could really impact even a young person's body. From your, you know, from your standpoint, why is this virus so unpredictable? You know, like what are some of the unique challenges that this pandemic brings? Well, right now, we don't know if it's, I haven't seen any literature really uh, shared with nurses. And just because it's so new, but the one journal article I did read that was shared with me from by my clinical nurse specialist was saying like, we, it's hard to see if this virus is like spread through like droplet, where you have a like, think of like just a regular surgical mask, like a simple mask. I don't know if you've been to the hospital or clinic recently, but we just don't know if it's droplets where someone would cough and the little droplets itself would just fall. Or if this virus is airborne, where someone would cough and it would just kind of be suspending or hanging out in the air. So we wouldn't know if how it was generally being spread. So, and that made it hard for us to know which mask to use because we have like an N95, which would protect us. But with a simple mask, it would be protecting the patient. But for the virus itself, what's tough is that 
when you we primarily see it in the elderly population so and the virus does there's a lot of inflammation going on um, in the body and but it also compromises the respiratory system so you know usually uh, patients who have you know a chronic respiratory illness like pulmonary illness or was like immunocompromised so if they had like maybe AIDS or HIV or was a recent organ transplant they would be susceptible to so but primarily it was the the virus just attacking the the respiratory itself and it's hard to say like because there's so many clinical experimental drugs out there because it's it's a virus it's not bacterial so because usually with a virus you know like the flu we normally don't give like intravenous drugs to the flu just because but where someone has like pneumonia respiratory illness it would be bacteria and they would be able to give like an antibiotic so that's why it's just it's difficult Mm -hmm. um, just to treat and and you kind of see the effects there's a lot of labs too but it would uh to eat up a lot of time so i'm curious because obviously covid's a lot you know you have to it's very intrusive with the type of treatment methods to treat it and things like that it's a lot to like do procedurally and to experience i'm curious has the hospital your hospital done anything for the mental health well-being for the workers there and also for the patients or like the patients families like are there anything are there any things that the hospital have done towards helping mental health no that's a, actually a great point that you bring i didn't think about that yeah i as far as the family i i don't know as of now what the hospital is doing for family members who's loved ones did pass away with COVID-19. I don't know. What I do know that the hospital did have prior, even prior to the pandemic, like work-life balance group that would just have like a psych nurse that would kind of facilitate the whole discussion and there would be nurses there or nurse assistants or anyone that was involved in medical care, whether or not they were bedside or provided direct patient care. So we had we had that pre-pandemic. However, I, I don't know if that's currently going on because I, I don't know if people are allowed to have in-person meetings. So Got it. that's the difficult part too about the virus is that it what we the resources that we did have that required physical presence in a group, it's not happening, at least as of, as of right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there hasn't been anything that the hospitals say, hey, like we understand you're going through a lot. Here's some mental health resources or there hasn't been any talk about mental health in that space, whether it be for the people working there or like the families? Nothing for the families, unfortunately. I could be totally wrong. My hospital is very large though. I will say that sometimes there's things like just resources out there that unless you hear from another person or you come across, it's almost like the size of a, a huge university. Like just, you know, you just find out things just through people. But leadership hasn't said anything about, I would imagine, you know, like the whoever is managing everyone. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, like, I, I mean, that's a great point. Now, uh, other than like the community, like restaurants in, in the area that are, you know, at first we're donating, whether it be medical supplies, PPE, food, that was going strong for like, for maybe three months. I don't know if this would count, but they showcase a lot of, uh, at least like, nurses and a lot of frontline staff, whether it be a nurse or a patient transporter, and they would highlight them and whether that be on the Instagram channel or through the email. So they would kind of highlight their their experiences or maybe someone could sing and they were singing to a patient. So they try to do that 
in reminding people like, hey, everybody's in this together. And from your observation, CJ, what are some particular things that are challenging during this time for you or your floor or for your you know, fellow nurses? I think right now is the just the visitors because a lot of family members they're just, you know, they can't see their loved one or patient until they've been, they as a patient, like been ruled out. And that's just hard for a family member to hear. So we get a lot of phone calls and we have to explain to them. And sometimes are very, are a lot of heated conversations. Now that I'm talking to you about this, we also get that like in the ER when patients go in, they may go in there for like an upset stomach, but then they would be coughing and kind of have these symptoms that would be suspicious for COVID. The doctor would order a swab, they would be swabbed. And as soon as the doctor orders it, even if the patient refuses to get swabbed, that patient will be sent to my floor. And then once I receive that patient, the family would be surprised as to why that patient is on the COVID unit. And they're like scared to death because, you know, they're scared that their loved one is going to get COVID and they came in for like an upset stomach or maybe that their loved one was in the hospital for, I don't know, like a procedure and all of a sudden started coughing, gets swapped, gets into our unit and they're like, well, oh my God, why is he there? Or why is she there? So it's gotten like a lot of tension in, in the phone conversations and just having to re-explain and that makes it harder on staff because I understand like the family's like frustrations and, and the fact that like some their loved one is on a COVID unit and they before the hospital like they they had they were like COVID free now they're on the COVID unit and so sometimes even what's said to nurses patients or the family members would just be so just so heated and and just you know emotional that like it just gets displaced on the nurses. Did you have to personally have these conversations with family members as well? Oh my god all the time. Yeah. And we have something called a patient relations, which is like a nurse who just communicate. It was like basically a liaison between staff, whether that be nurse or doctor and a family member. So it's tough, you know, but we have a protocol to follow and it's to, and we do that to limit the spread because like what I usually relay back to the family members that even if your, let's just say husband was there for a procedure and happened to cough and had a fever and got swabbed for COVID and now they're on the COVID unit. I understand like, you know, your husband being transferred, but, you know, imagine if your husband happened to be, you know, next to, or, you know, next to another patient who had those symptoms and the nurses didn't allow for that patient to be transferred, then, you know, the husband would now be at risk. So that's why we have these procedures is like, even if it's just to limit the spread and just contain the virus. And like one of the worst things in the hospital is like, it is what we call like, you know, getting a a hospital acquire, you know, disease. So Mm -hmm. it does happen. Do do your conversation with the family member, are they, after you talk to them, do you think they feel better or is there just nothing, you know, I'm, I'm sure it varies, right? It does vary, but I would say, I don't know, better put like, Eight out of the 10 calls that I would get (laughs) would be a family member who's just angry. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I have family members that just, you know, they they would try to threaten by calling their lawyer or they would say, I'm going to walk up there and get my mom or my father. Meanwhile, their mother and father are 
on a high amount of oxygen support and they need a high level, they have a high level of oxygen requirements. So for them to move, remove their mom and dad out of the hospital would literally cause their family member to collapse immediately. So, but it makes it hard because they don't see the extent. And I, I understand like, you know, you wake up the next day and you hear back that you're, hey, your family member is in the COVID unit. So I think my team does a really good job of swabbing the patients and constantly looking to labs. So the minute the, that the labs result or the COVID swabs result and it shows negative, then we move the patients out of the, you know, the, the unit as soon as possible. You know, having this difficult conversation with family members is part of the job description, it sounds like. So that's, you know, a lot of pressure on top of, you know, just regular stuff. It's also, you know, being yelled at by people who are scared. That's not pleasant. How How's your team doing with, with that? You know, is it just so normalized that, you know, it's just part of the job? Or, you know, are there any, like, support that the team gives to each other, you know, with these tough conversations? As of now... I would say no, mm -hmm. just because, you know, we're still fighting, you know, the virus and it's just like, there's no sign, you know, that we're at the end of the tunnel where we can see the light and we don't know how it's going to, I don't know, I would say celebrated, but we haven't like kind of detached from the situation. Right. You're still fighting. Yeah. And it, it gets tiring just because, you know, having to go in the room, you have to gown up and then come out of the room, you have to like degown, wears on you and having to wear a mask and also the volume of calls that we get because not only family members, but other like staff, whether it be nutrition or physical therapy, you know, it's not their fault, but like, yeah, we are the COVID unit, but so everyone is calling us. So you can imagine if we, we have, you know, four or three patients, and you get like at least 10, 12 calls for one patient, that's a lot of calls. So, and it makes it difficult to provide patient care. So yeah, and I mean, even our holiday party that we have annually at the end of the year in December, that's canceled too. So yeah, it's just, I think people at this point are just, they're waiting for the virus to be over. And But there's really our local government or even federal government that doesn't really show kind of or give us like a an idea when this thing might be over even if the vaccine is made and distributed like it's just hard to say right now and my my unit especially we've been at this since march you know our unit has been like every bed has been filled since march whereas other units it was a low census because no one was coming to the hospital so mm -hmm. we've been like like just running from the start so are the beds still um, filled now? Yes, they are. But recently we've seen like, uh, I can't give you numbers, but like we used to have for one side, we had like 64 beds that were, I don't know, I would say one side now, one wing is like 32 beds where we it was all dedicated for COVID. But within the last two weeks, we haven't been really receiving those critical COVID patients. Not to say that they're not being tested positive, but they're just stable enough to go home mm. and not be admitted. But we've turned almost like half, maybe like close to 14, 12 beds that have been converted back to like cardiac tele. So yeah, we, we haven't been seeing those like critical COVID patients, but all our beds are are being used right now, but it, it's they're not all COVID patients. Okay, I see. So not, yeah. not every bed in the hospital right now in your unit are COVID patients? Yeah. Okay, I see. So like there are beds being used for other patients at the moment, but they're Correct. not all COVID patients. 
Yeah, and and maybe one of the you may say like, well, wouldn't you be kind of passing that to someone who doesn't have COVID? But everyone that comes on our COVID, we kind of categorize them as like one would be considered low risk, and we would put them on or admit them in the you know cardiac tele bed, and we would get a high high risk for COVID to the COVID bed. So we would have one side of the unit would be all COVID, and then one side would be all just like normal cardiac beds. Got you, got you. So car- just to clarify, so Sorry. cardiac tele is just like normal. How would you? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, cardiac tele is like anyone that has like a possibly like a like a heart issue, and that requires like constant heart monitoring so we have like heart monitors at the bedside and we have heart monitors at the nursing station that the the tele just means heart monitoring got it it. Um, just yeah gotcha just different levels of monitoring depends on how severe or how low or high risk the patient is correct yeah and i don't know how patients are because usually we get our patients from the er the er is the one to judge whether a patient's high risk or not low or high risk so mm-hmm. in my unit specifically maybe a month ago only accepted high risk now we accept both low and high risk gotcha so things it looks like things are still moving towards the right direction just not very quickly yeah it now the trouble is is just the the bed placement like how do we make sure or guarantee that this bed is like being fully utilized like for COVID patients that we know for sure have it? Because it's really hard to say because a lot of conditions overlap with symptoms. I see. So, and it's hard to say because sometimes we do get patients and we would, I would be like, oh my God, this patient does not have COVID. Like he definitely should be on a different floor, you know? When are the patient tested and, and results came in? Because would that be helpful with that differentiation? Or are you guys just taking patients like right away? So they're still waiting period. Yeah, well, even if a patient, let's just say, goes through the... So we either get our... My unit receives patients either from like the ICU, which is like the highest level of care, and patients would be positive, but maybe not critical enough or coming off the ventilator and now coming to my unit and they would already be positive to begin with and we would get also patients that are coming from the er and even if a patient like screens positive well we have like these tests called that could produce results rapidly like within like an hour hour and a half so even if a patient proves positive but is stable and can you know talk and engage in conversation and didn't really need oxygen then that patient would go home so usually if a patient is positive and requires just even a little bit of oxygen but normally would never need it but in this case does need it because of the suspicion for covid then we would take those patients in understand and i'm curious so because of everything that's happening, how has it has it influenced kind of work-life balance? I'm assuming that you try to keep work as separate as possible and then kind of <laughs> go back to life. Like how does, how's that been? <laughs> yeah, personally, I think from the start, maybe like March to like June, I didn't see any really of my family members or friends too, just because I worked on the COVID unit. And I didn't really know how severe the like how likely I could pass the virus if I did have it. Cause one could be a, like one could not have symptoms, but still be positive for it. So I just didn't want to take that risk in infecting like my family or friends. Cause they all knew I worked on the COVID unit, but what's made it just harder on like me and my, even like 
relationship with my girlfriend is just the fact like, you know, California and like the, the shutdowns, it's just, I've, you know, they've started in March and it, it's continuing and the shutdowns just made it harder in the sense like, you know, it's can't really go out and maybe get a massage or like, mm-hmm. you know, just going out for a drink. But mainly I know like you guys spoke on mental health. We've had a few patients, at least the ones I've interacted with that have COVID, you know, they're in there for like suicidal ideation. Yeah. Just because the lockdowns, as I mentioned, and just being isolated from someone or being furloughed or laid off or even working remotely at home, like being being at home too, like the alcoholism and the abuse of prescription drugs. And even be, in living in Los Angeles, being confined to like a small space, like, like your home, just that kind of small space and being there for many months, like it does an impact on the mental health. And I've seen that almost at least like couldn't throw that like once a week, I would deal with it with a patient, you know, with that kind of condition. So I didn't see that at the beginning, even pre pandemic, I wasn't really dealing with a lot of, you know, mental health. That's hard. So that's been coming up a lot more that people are coming in because of what other either substance abuse or suicidal ideations. That's becoming Um, recently. Yeah, we would have like a sitter, like a one on one sitter that'd be there just making sure they wouldn't hurt themselves. It, it was that we had to have a close watch on them. Usually they would be admitted as the primary reason is for suicidal, but they would have a secondary problem as COVID, or they would come in pri- first for COVID. And then we would figure out the patient is depressed and would just be at risk or would say things that would, you know, initiate kind of like, you know, a sitter and a psychiatrist to come and see that patient. So we had a few, few cases recently. Yeah. And that's very interesting that the mental health conversations haven't been happening then because that's kind of what everyone's experiencing mental health strain, whether, yeah, I, um, whether skill. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm tripping too far ahead, but you know, I just wonder what kind of effect that has on people. Like I know like the coming months, like everyone's waiting for the vaccines, but specifically too, for those who live in California, even like LA or I'm at like the shutdowns have been happening since March, even when they were reopened and maybe for like a few days and they were shut down, like, and that prevented people from socializing. I just wonder what kind of impact it's having. So like I said, too, being in you know a small apartment too for that long, I, I just can't imagine like the impact that it would have on someone just like, whereas like other, you know, I, I recently went to Texas and in Austin and, you know, most homes and people who lived there were like had a large amount of space and was able to roam there's parks so it, it's tougher here in LA because the the city structure is different and there isn't as much like parks and and I know it's stricter here on the on the protocols and this is kind of the last question we're going to wrap after this I'm just curious if you're if you're comfortable sharing of course what kind of your experiences with mental health or kind of your final thoughts on that since I feel like that has been, you know, kind of a key theme and something that, that we're all kind of working through. <laughs> yeah, like not related to COVID or? Well, from a health worker um, perspective during this time, because, you know, like we mentioned before, in general, nursing is a very stressful profession. And in this time, you know, they have to juggle with the pandemic, with increased hours of work and, you know, with with the very angry and scared public that's directing a lot of emotions at you like what are some how are your personal mental health doing during this time 
Personally, I mean, in general, it, it still carries out even being in the pandemic, but even as a nurse, just when you step away from work, you clock out, come home and, you know, maybe my family member or my girlfriend would talk to me, whether it be on the phone and it would be actually a serious issue, but I wouldn't have enough kind of, I don't know, I, I'd be emotionally drained to even try to just support them. Sometimes I would even not snap, but I would have a very low threshold if, you know, there was, you know, any arguments. So I, I nurses in general, though, just being daily, showing up to work, being put in a stressful environment and, and even stepping on the floor, not knowing what they're, they will see or do or what will happen. It, it's already stressful to begin with. And so I personally, though, I'm someone who has to like exercise and run and go on a bike or even trying to read something positive. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I try to like helps me with my mental health. In general, though, too, with at least coworkers, I don't know what their situation's like, like meaning just seeing them. I, I've seen at the start, there was a few coworkers that were afraid and they were freaking out. I've never seen that side, but that's all gone away. But for the patients, too, who come in, whether it be schizophrenia or suicidal ideation, even coming in for some sort of like overdose, from what I've seen, what I know, like this personally, like in speaking with other psychiatrists, it's for patients, at least it's some sort of, I know, trauma and earlier childhood that would cause them to have either a change in personality or in habits and it would just progress and not sometimes, but it would be left untreated. And then there would be a trigger and, you know, and that would lead them to, you know, substance abuse. And if there's anything to say to like the public, at least from what I've seen in the hospital for those that like in regards to our mental health, like LA has a big homeless population and people would normally say like, oh, it's drug abuse, but like that's the surface level, but beneath the underlining issues are like, it's like schizophrenia or personality disorders. And even lower, that's all caused by, not all, I know what I'm saying, but like it, from what I've known, I've talked to a psychiatrist, it's trauma in early childhood that ha- that was never really resolved or even opened. Like when I say early childhood, maybe just some sort of experience or trauma before 25. So that's my research, what I've read and what I've talked with with other psychiatrists. So and uh, what are some ways that you suggest that, you know, the friends and family of healthcare workers or, you know, just the general public can do to support, you know, registered nurses like you or, you know, anyone that's going through this stress during this time? What are some practical things that we can help? Patience. (laughs) Patience is a big thing. I say that because, you know, whether someone is visiting, having a primary care doctor visit or is in a hospital, whether they're there supporting a family member or they themselves are the patient, just to have patience with staff, even if, because a lot of times nurses may not be as responsive or would not be as responsive and that would trigger a lot of people or whether they be inpatient or they feel like they're being ignored and it comes back on the nurses but behind the scenes there's just so much task going on and nurses are prioritizing kind of the most important task so it's hard to explain all that because we just you know because when we do step in the room you know after being gone for 20 minutes we just may hear a complaint and we just be thrown off guard or i mean there are times when i've seen nurses like i literally have seen patients just Normal patients I would see on the street 
just call nurses incompetent or just say really nasty things to a nurse. I didn't expect pandemic to change like a patient's behavior and how they treated nurses. I didn't expect all of that, but maybe I thought that would change one's behavior toward nurses. But I think it's support nurses is just being patient and just understanding like there's reason why a nurse may not be responsive or there. It's not to say that they're never responsive or always late or forgetting to complete your tasks. It's just that they're handing a lot of stuff behind the scenes that patients don't see. Yeah, definitely. I think um, a lot of compassion we can have for each other during this time is the best way to deal with the uncertainty that we're all facing. So thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. That was CJ, a registered nurse at a COVID unit in Los Angeles. This was the Things I Never Said podcast. We're discussing his experience at work during the pandemic. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you for our next episode. All right. Thanks, CJ. (laughs) 